0: Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American. For the week of February twelfth, two thousand nine, I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we celebrate Darwin Day. February twelfth is the two hundredth anniversary of the birth of Darwin, and we'll actually have Darwin on the program, kinda. This past weekend, I attended a Darwin Day event put together by the New York Society for Ethical Culture. We'll hear from a number of the presenters who spoke that day in this special three-part podcast. In this first episode, we begin with an appearance by Darwin himself in the person of historian and evolution expert Richard Milner. We had him on the podcast a few weeks back talking about Darwin. This week, we'll share a few minutes of him performing part of his one-man show as Darwin, including a couple of musical numbers. Next up, we'll hear from Scientific American Editor-in-Chief John Rennie and author, filmmaker, and Darwin great-great-grandson Matthew Chapman we will both read brief excerpts from The Origin of Species, and then we'll hear an interview I did with Chapman after the event. Parts 2 and 3 of the podcast feature other speakers at the event and will be released over the next couple of days. And now here's Charles Darwin. How nice of you all to come for my birthday. Darwin's
1: the name. Well, I was born a naturalist. My father, Dr. Robert Waring Darwin, a prosperous physician, did not consider that a marketable aptitude. When I was a boy, he told me, you care for nothing but hunting beetles, bird shooting, and rat catching, and will bring disgrace upon yourself and the entire family. And so, at father's insistence, I entered Edinburgh's famous school of medicine, When I was 16 years old how I loved to walk the rugged volcanic cliffs in the Scottish countryside they were calling me to geologize but Edinburgh holds dark memories too of uh, medical training in those days before blessed anesthesia I clearly remember running out of the university's operating theater, unable to bear the screams of a strapped-down child in surgery, I was a medical student who could not bear the sight of blood and thus abruptly ended my medical career. My father next persuaded me to study theology at Cambridge in preparation for a genteel life as a country vicar. My father said you could collect beetles and save souls at the same time. My great adventure began in 1831, of course, when Captain Robert Fitzroy invited me to join the HMS Beagle's surveying voyage around the world as a ship's naturalist, thus abruptly ending my ecclesiastical career. The Beagle was the beginning of my first real education. I collected Thousands of specimens of marine creatures, and shells, birds, fishes, plants, and rocks for shipment back to England. My initial foray into a Brazilian rainforest made an impression that lasted the rest of my life. I, I, felt, I felt like a blind man who was given his sight and was seeing for the first time wonders like those of the Arabian Nights. Delight itself is a weak term to express the delight that a naturalist feels upon first being alone in the Brazilian rainforest. The elegance of the grasses, the novelty of the parasitical plants, the luxuriance of the vegetation filled me with admiration. The delight that one experiences at such times bewilders the mind. If if the eye attempts to follow a gaudy butterfly, uh, it is arrested by the still stranger flower that it is crawling on. The mind is a chaos of delight. Well, Captain Fitzroy's mission was to map the coastline of South America, and I looked at it through the eyes of Charles Lyell. Because just before I left on the voyage, my teacher gave me a copy of Lyell's Principles of Geology that had just come out, and Lyle said that you could explain all the features of the earth not by the hand of the divine or by some cataclysms, but by slow, steady processes observable today on the earth. Wind and rain, erosion, volcanoes, earthquakes, and uh, I saw volcanoes and earthquakes, Uh, as we traveled around the world. Captain Fitzroy's mission was to map the coastline of South America uh, for the Admiralty, an often perilous venture in the tempestuous waters off Tierra del Fuego where our little vessel nearly capsized in a storm at sea. Within two years after returning to England, I married my cousin, Emma Wedgwood, the pottery manufacturer's daughter, you know, the... uh, Wedgwoods were famous for two things, their piety and their crockery. And her brother, who believed in spiritualism, did their crack pottery as well. Now, at our country estate, Downhouse, uh, I set myself the task of discovering the laws of life. How did the plants and creatures I saw on my voyage originate, and how did they disperse to the far-flung regions of the earth? Well, Around 1837, I took up the idea of transmutation or evolution, which my grandfather Erasmus had uh, published shortly before I was born. Uh, Grandfather believed that species developed gradually over immense periods of time from common ancestors. After many years of experimentation in my garden and greenhouse, I arrived at a mechanism for evolution which I called natural selection, that favorable variations in organisms would tend to be preserved while the others would be eliminated from the population. Well, before I could write my big species book, a younger naturalist called Alfred Russell Wallace, working alone in the jungles of Malaysia, came up with exactly the same theory. He wrote it down and sent it to me by post. It reached me several weeks later and threw me into a panic So all my originality would be smashed. So, Wallace would be first to publish the theory of evolution. Well, let him be first then. Let him be first. There'll be no adulation. Let him be first. There'll be no celebration. Let him inform the human race, that it came down from the trees, and he can tell the bishops, they are kin to chimpanzees, let him be first, I'll offer no resistance, let him be first, I'll lend him my assistance. They'll hang the man who'd dare deny the stories we were nurtured by. In every British home, he will be cursed. Let him, yes, let him be first. Let him be first. And I. Will take no action. Let him be first to claim this vague abstraction. It's nothing but a theory any dreamer would conceive. <laughs> Not a thing a man of any substance will believe. tempted, come, do your worst, it seems I've been preempted, my bid for immortality, <laughs> has been a lovely joke on me, I'll have to watch my pretty bubble first, forget yes, that's But, Wallace was not first. No, our papers were presented together in 1858 at the Linnean Society of London, and I rushed to complete the Origin of Species in 13 months a task that had eluded me for the previous 20 years. When my friend, the zoologist Thomas Henry Huxley, read the origin in 1859, it changed his life. He became a prominent champion of evolution. (laughs) He was a bit of an egotist, Huxley, rather flamboyant character. His first thought on reading the book was, how extremely stupid not to have thought of that myself. Of course, I should have seen it long ago. It was adaptive radiation that produced the mighty whale. His hands are grown for slippers, and he has a fishy tail. Selections made him streamlined for his liquid habitat. Why didn't I? Think of that! There was an ancient mammal that could pop and leap around, but with webbing twitched its fingers, he could fly right off the ground. And so this mousy creature evolved into a bat. Why did I think of that! There are fossils in the ground, protozoa in the sea. All these unrelated facts made a monkey out of me. But now I see how species were selectively defined. How could I have been so ready blind? There was an ancient monkey with a long and curly tail. This ape evolved into a man. He's teaching now at Yale. A chip could pass for upper class in gloves and a cravat. Why didn't I think of that? Struggle for survival. lies outside the jungle too. Hm. Take a look at Parliament. It's better than a zoo. We're at each other's throats, just like the bulldog and the
0: cat. But one to die, why to
1: die? Your ideas are their solutions. To create a revolution, why? You die. I think of that!
0: Next up is Derek Arujo, the Vice President of the New York Center for Inquiry, to introduce Matthew Chapman and John Rennie. Uh,
2: I have the great pleasure and honor of introducing Matthew Chapman and John Rennie, who will read for us two beautifully poetic and graceful selections from Darwin's Origin of Species. Matthew Chapman is the great-great-grandson of Charles Darwin from whom he inherited his glorious English accent. But much more than that, he is an acclaimed author, Hollywood screenwriter, director, and film producer. Uh, Matthew is the author of the books 40 Days and 40 Nights, which uh, uh, gives his first-hand account of the 2005 Kitzmiller Intelligent Design Trial in Dover, Pennsylvania, and also of his first book, Trials of the Monkey, an Accidental Memoir, which is a personal memoir uh, centered on a trip to Dayton, Tennessee to witness a reenactment of the Scopes trial. Matthew's produced screenplays include Runaway Jury, starring Gene Hackman, Dustin Hoffman, and John Cusack, and Color of Night, starring Bruce Willis. He has written and directed multiple films, including Slow Burn with Johnny Depp and *Hussy* star- starring Helen Mirren. He is currently writing and directing a philosophical thriller, Titled The Ledge. Our second guest reader is John Rennie, the editor in chief of the marvelous magazine Scientific American. John received his Bachelor of Science degree in biology from Yale in 1981, after which he worked for several years in a laboratory at Harvard Medical School before embarking on his career as a science writer. He first joined the staff of Scientific American as a member of the Board of Editors in 1989, and his writing has appeared, among elsewhere, in The Economist, The New York Times, and Longevity. His numerous television and radio appearances include ABC World News Weekend, The News Hour with Jim Lair, Entertainment Tonight, NPR's Science Friday, and Fox News. I'm very curious, John, to learn... Uh, who Fox brought in alongside you to provide the required fairness and balance for their news commentary. Thank you to both of our very special guest readers. We will begin with a reading from Matthew and end with a reading from John. So I'm very
3: happy to be here. And um, Derek did actually leave off something that I'm very proud of that I would like to mention. Partly because I'm hoping that you'll all join, uh, is that I founded an organization called Science Debate 2008, which was an organization which was trying to get the presidential candidates to have a debate on science. And, um, we didn't succeed, but we got them to answer 14 of our member, uh, synthesized questions. Um, so that's what, that's what I've actually been doing more than the film business, is trying to get more science discussed in, in public life. So, um, as man can produce, and certainly has produced, a great result by his methodical and unconscious means of selection, what may not natural selection affect? Man can act only on external and visible characters. Nature, if I may be allowed to personify the natural preservation of survival of the fittest, cares nothing for appearances in, except insofar as they are useful to any being. She can act on every internal organ, on every shade of constitutional difference, on the whole machinery of life. Man selects only for his own good, nature only for that of the being which she tends. Every selected character is fully exercised by her, as is implied by the fact of their selection. Man keeps the natives of many climates in the same country, he seldom exercises each selected character in some peculiar and fitting manner. He feeds a long and a short beaked pigeon on the same food. He does not exercise a long backed or long legged quadruped in any particular manner. He exposes sheep with long and short wool to the same climate. He does not allow the most vigorous males to struggle for the females. did stop me. He does not rigidly destroy all inferior animals but protects during each varying season as far as lies in his power all his productions. He often begins his selection by some half-monstrous form or at least by some modification prominent enough to catch the eye or to be plainly useful to him. Under nature the slightest difference of structure or constitution may well turn the nicely balanced scale in the struggle for life and so be preserved. How fleeting are the wishes and efforts of man, how short his time, and consequently how poor will be his results, compared with those accumulated by nature during whole geological periods. Can we wonder then that nature's productions should be far truer in character than man's productions, that they should be infinitely better adapted to the most complex conditions of life, and should plainly bear the stamp of far higher, higher workmanship. Thank you.
4: Well, thank you very much. It is uh, it is a pleasure to be here today with uh, so many persons, uh, so illustrious, and in some cases, dead. Uh, but. Um, but but most especially really with all of you who are here in, in the crowd and who have, have, have taken the time to come here and, and celebrate not just Charles Darwin, but the wonderful ideas of Charles Darwin and, and that really are, are a living legacy for all of us. That is, that is just it is stupendous to see the turnout of a crowd like this and, and let us go forth from this place and spread this good word. Um, but uh, I, I, as Derek mentioned, I'm the editor-in-chief of a magazine, and uh, as the editor-in-chief of a magazine, I'm accustomed to getting the last word in a lot of things. And, and so it's uh, very appropriate, then, that uh, Derek has allowed me to read the last words of, uh, on the origin of the species. Authors of the highest eminence seem to be fully satisfied with the view that each species has been independently created, To my mind, it accords better with what we know of the laws impressed on matter by the creator that the production and extinction of the past and present inhabitants of the world should have been due to secondary causes, like those determining the birth and death of the individual. When I view all beings not as special creations, but as the lineal descendants of some few beings which lived long before the first bed of the Cambrian system was deposited, they seem to me to become ennobled. Judging from the past, we may safely infer that not one living species will transmit its unaltered likeness to a distinct futurity. And of the species now living, very few will transmit progeny of any kind to a far distant futurity, for the manner in which all organic beings are grouped shows that the greater number of species in each genus, and all the species in many genera, have left no descendants, but have become utterly extinct. We can so far take a prophetic glance into futurity as to foretell that it will be the common and widely spread species, belonging to the larger and dominant groups within each class, which will ultimately prevail and procreate new and dominant species. As all the living forms of life are the lineal descendants of those which lived long before the Cambrian epoch, we may feel certain that that the ordinary succession by generation has never once been broken, and that no cataclysm has desolated the whole world. Hence, we may look with some confidence to a secure future of great length. And as natural selection works solely by and for the good of each being, all corporeal and mental endowments will tend to progress towards perfection." It is interesting to contemplate a tangled bank clothed with many species of plants of many kinds, with birds singing on the trees, with various insects flitting about, and with worms crawling through the damp earth. And to reflect that these elaborately constructed forms, so different from each other, and dependent upon each other in so complex a manner, have all been produced by laws acting around us. These laws, taken in the largest sense, being growth with reproduction, inheritance, which is almost implied by reproduction, variability from the indirect and direct action of the conditions of life and from the use and disuse, a ratio of increase so high as to lead to a struggle for life, and as a consequence, to natural selection, entailing divergence of character and the extinction of less improved forms. Thus, from the war of nature, from famine and death, the most exalted object which we are capable of conceiving, namely, the production of the higher animals, directly follows. There is grandeur in this view of life with its several powers, having been originally breathed by the Creator into a few forms, or into one, and that whilst this planet has gone on cycling on according to the fixed law of gravity, from so simple a beginning, endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been and are being evolved. Thank you.
0: After the reading, Chapman and I spoke for a few minutes. He's the author of the book 40 Days and 40 Nights about the Dover Intelligent Design Evolution Trial, which recently came out in paperback. 40 Days and 40 Nights, you were at the trial. What did you come away from the trial with? What what kind of... Uh, Challenges to your preconceptions, if any, did you come away with?
3: Well, if anything, I mean, what, what few preconceptions I had about intelligent design was that it was actually better worked out than it turned out to be. It seemed really thin when you examined it. And preconceptions that I had about scientists being dry or humorless or unable to communicate... I found that in fact there were some people there who did a cre- an incredible job of communicating really relatively complicated scientific details to a judge who knew nothing about science. And so I was very impressed with that, and it's one of the things that stimulated me later on. You know.
0: One of the great things about the judge was just how eager he seemed to be about learning all this material.
3: Yeah, and I mean, the thing about evolution that I find interesting is that on one level, it's extremely simple, and it makes total sense. I mean, the strong survive, and the weak die away. Then, obviously, the strong, you know, any adaptation, its you know, it's all very simple. And then you get down to the detail, and then it gets complicated. And um, I felt, actually, that intelligent design was trying to sort of, like, sniggle into some sort of complicated little areas where no one would understand what they were saying and come out of it with some sort of a theory that didn't make any sense. The bacterial flagellum. Yeah, the the famous bacterial flagellum.
0: Tell me your perspective. Um, I was shocked. Uh, I had never really sat through any kind of trial before. I've seen some real trials on TV, but I'd never been at one in person. And I was really taken aback at how ill-prepared the defense attorneys seem to be when confronted with an expert witness of the caliber of, say, Ken Miller?
3: No, it was very odd. They were ill-prepared. They were arrogant. They were extremely rude a lot of the time. Um, some of them were very sweet. Actually, I got along very well with Michael Behe. Um He and I had a couple of laughs. But it's really, to me... I mean, you can't say this about the lawyers because the lawyers were clearly scientifically illiterate religious fundamentalists. But the scientists I found who who were the intelligent design scientists were to me kind of almost tragic rather than villainous. Mm -hmm. There was something sad about watching Behe, who has a serious scientific education, who has written on some things perfectly reasonably and published papers that make sense, Going up this kind of completely ludicrous path for reasons that he can't admit their religious motivation of, but I just found it very sad actually. I was, I was, I found it pitiable. And I mean that genuinely, I don't mean it in a condescending way.
0: Yeah, and he was forced to testify that under his definitions astrology would have to be considered a science.
3: Yeah, he was really wriggling on the hook. And, and uh, I, I don't know, I mean I think, I, I've run into him, and I've travelled around America a lot, and I I love actually to go into the middle bit where the regular people live, and um, you know I've met people like that before here and there, and you ultimately you're you're you have to conclude that really what it's about is that without faith these people couldn't survive, and therefore given a choice between faith and evidence. It doesn't matter what the evidence is; you have to choose the faith in order to survive, and that's sort of understandable. And and you know, one can sympathise with that. It's not attractive, but you can sympathise with it. So I, I never, I don't have the same kind of uh, anger or hatred towards them. I just think it's a a little sad. You know? uh, that that
0: relates to something else. I wanted to ask you. I heard you being interviewed, and you referred to the fact that this is related to your first book or your previous book that uh, you had gone back to Dayton, Tennessee, the site of the Scopes trial, some 80 years after the trial, and I believe you said something like, to see if uh, things were different, and they weren't. There had been absolutely no cultural evolution as far as you could see. What, What did you actually confront when you got there?
3: Well, I mean, I think the thing was that not only had it not evolved, but that if you read the accounts of the Scopes trial in 1925... And you read about the local preachers and the hellfire and brimstone and all of that stuff. It's very colorful, but it doesn't have the... It seemed to me it it, it didn't have the kind of vicious, homophobic qualities uh, that you get in the modern fundamentalist church down there.
0: Yeah, the sculpture was sort of a, a, a county fair in a lot of ways.
3: It very much was, yeah. And it was, people had a lot of fun with it. I mean, you uh, there was milkshakes called the Monkey Milkshake. And there was all kinds of sort of... It was fun. I mean, it was a fantastic trial. It was, um, you know, it was, the f- it was the first trial to be... Uh, it was broadcast live to America, to Australia, to bits of Europe. Uh, there was a special airstrip was put down there for planes to come in with a film. Like, you know, they took it very seriously. In 925, the idea that there would be a fight about... Evolution versus creationism it was kind of shocking and it was a big event. So when you get to Kitzmiller, V Dover, which is the one I, I covered in Pennsylvania, um, eighty-five years later or ninety years later, and you saw there was yeah, there was some coverage, but no one was actually that shocked. So I mean things have gotten in a way worse. There's more tolerance for this kind of ludicrousness and less outrage. Um, you know George Bernard Shaw commented on uh on the on the Scopes trial, he said what they call fundamentalism, I call infantilism. <laughs> right.
0: uh, yeah, that was shocking to me at the Kitzmiller trial. I was looking for the mobs. I was looking for the protests. I was looking for the the uh, satellite trucks from all the television outlets, and there was nothing.
3: No, I mean, and it was an an amazing trial. I think I think the only I mean I love the judge. He's a friend of mine. Um, I think the only mistake he made was not having it televised you know, it should have been televised because it was, it was an education you watch these, the evolutionary scientists talking about science you got an education you, by the end of that trial you understood what evolution was and really it was true. a shame it wasn't recorded
0: fortunately Nova did an excellent job with their two hour documentary on it which is available at the PBS website I believe you can just stream that for free anytime you want to
3: yeah, no, that's a, that's a good piece of work. And and what it, what it, what it, what it did for me to go on to, to continue that thought about the way in which it was an education was what I saw was that it was possible for a complicated scientific subject to be discussed in front of a lay audience, not be patronizing to the lay audience, get across a lot of information, and excite people. Because the local people were meeting outside the courtroom and saying, Wow, did you hear a thing about the bacterial flagellum? And did you hear the thing about how many years it took for these things to evolve? This is kind of amazing. They got excited. So that when the uh, presidential election came up, and I noticed that the presidential candidates were not being asked questions about science in the debates, mm-hmm. um, and I, I, along with five friends of mine, started this thing, Science Debate 2008, a lot of the impetus of that was was I realized that the presidential candidates were afraid of science, but that they didn't really need to be because, in fact, you could talk about science in an intelligent way and uh, and it it didn't need to be detached from real life. You could make that... It didn't have to be an academic pursuit that no one connected with. There are so many problems that involve science. You could start from the top down and discuss them in terms of policy and money and attitude and so it was uh that was a lot the two were very connected for me
0: and you did try to get the science the uh, candidates for president to engage in this debate that would just be about science and that ultimately did not succeed are you planning to try to do it again for 2012
3: oh absolutely yeah and i mean it did not succeed in all kinds of interesting ways i think it did not succeed in the sense that we couldn't get mainstream media to cover us at first we were sort of celebrated by the blogosphere and they were very helpful and we got 40,000 members in two months and all of that. It was not successful in the sense that the candidates did not agree to it. But the way in which it was not successful that is most disturbing really is that... We eventually asked the candidates, we synthesized all of the questions that we got from our 40,000 members, what they wanted to hear the presidential candidates talk about, and we ended up with 14 questions on science and technology. We sent these questions to the candidates, and they answered them. We got Obama and McCain answered in great detail. They, they wrote their science agenda as a basic sketch of their science agenda, way before they'd ever done that before. Mm-hmm. This was available... And it was well publicised. I mean we by that time we started to get a lot of publicity. These questions and answers were well publicized. When the official presidential debates came along, the ones that are done by the Presidential Commission on Debates, the Commission for Presidential, um I think there are four of them. Maybe three presidential and one vice presidential. Oh, right, right. They had access to these 14 questions, which are the most important questions in life. What do we do about climate change? What do we do about the health of the oceans, stem cell research, etc., etc., etc.? None of those reporters who were running those debates, none of the producers, none of the debate moderators, used used what we had dug up for them, which could have been the basis for one question at least, So there is the, there is some sort of a strange gulf between science and politics, even though in reality there's no gulf. There's a huge connection. And that's something that we're, we're, we're looking into and pursuing. And, you know, we consider ourselves successful, but I am stimulated to go on and as is everybody else and really make it work next time and get a debate.
0: Well, that's it for part one. Check back in on February 12th for part two of our Darwin Day special podcast.